0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ted Ruger. I'm the Dean of the Law School. Uh, it's my t- tremendous pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon for our 2015 Holt Lecture. Um, this lecture series began in 2007 through the efforts and vision and generosity of Leon Holt, a uh, distinguished Penn Law alumnus from the class of 1951, uh, whose career as a business executive took him all across the world, and exposed him to to something we know very well in 2015. uh, But it was true throughout his career that our world is connected. It's ever smaller, uh, and that the impact of of policies, developments, um, health effects in one part of the world are intimately connected to things here in Philadelphia. And what we do here, and the policies, and decisions, and choices we make here are connected throughout the world. Lee Lee Holt's vision reflects this vision, which is the law school's vision, um, that uh, we live in an interconnected world. Uh, And the goal of this Holt lecture series is to bring in distinguished speakers who broaden our own understanding of the world, um, just as Lee Holt's understanding had been broadened from the time he was at Penn Law and left Penn Law and and worked internationally in Europe and Africa. Um, Through the years, the Holt lectures have reflected Lee's endless curiosity about how the world works and his deeply held conviction that the next generation um, of lawyers and scholars, many of whom in this room, you are the next generation, um, must have an understanding of the globally connected uh, and ever smaller world in which we live. Um, With these goals goals in mind, and in order to advance these these goals, we could have no better speaker today than our eminent visitor, Dr. Ngozi um, Okonjo-Iweala, Dr. Okonjo Iwela has served twice as Nigeria's finance minister, has held multiple position, leadership positions at the World Bank, uh, and has, has held a number of other crucially important positions and continues to hold such uh, positions in shaping the world's economic health policy um, and governance structures. She has a deep and abiding understanding of the challenges of global economic policy and global health policy. and. Um, We are tremendously pleased that you're here to share your wisdom with us today. Um, akonjo Uwele's life story is impressive and inspiring. Uh, She was born in Nigeria when the country was still a British colony and was a teenager when civil war broke out in the country seven years after the nation's independence. After working as a cook for the Biafran rebels on the front lines, she left Nigeria, to came to the United States to study at Harvard University, where she earned a degree in economics. She then moved across Cambridge uh, to the other side, earning a doctorate doctorate in economics at MIT, um, and then spent over two decades at the World Bank, where she eventually rose to the positions of managing director and and vice president. Um, She then returned in 2003 to Nigeria to serve as the country's first female finance minister and led that country's uh, emerging economic uh, ascendance. Um, In 2007, um, she was returned to Washington and was appointed to head the World Bank's work, uh, focusing on Africa, South Asia, Europe, and Central Asia, and in 2012 then came back to Nigeria to serve a second term as finance minister of that country. After only a week back in Nigeria as finance minister, um, she was recognized by the leaders of the African states who put her name forward as a candidate for presidency of the World Bank, uh, a pathbreaking nomination, uh, and, and an effort to broaden and break the hegemonic um, pattern of appointing um, only Americans in that position. Um, although this bid was unsuccessful, it has catalyzed a dialogue that is important and crucial and continues to this day about who ought to lead institutions like the World Bank and IMF, and then kind of set global economic policy. Um, during Dr. Uh, Uwela's time as finance minister in Ni- Nigeria, um, she has played a critical role in facilitating the economic growth of that country, um, which, um, th- which economy is the largest in Africa, and one of the fastest growing in the past five years, growing at an average of, of uh, 6% uh, per year or greater. Um, Also, during her time, she instituted reforms that brought about transparency in government in Nigeria that had not been seen before in that country, uh, and also succeeded in the equally difficult task of lowering uh, the inflation rate. Um, In her tenure, she has investigated corrupt oil companies, um, fought to end subsidy fraud uh, in government corporate transactions, and faced um, both political opposition and deep personal adversity. Uh, Opponents of her reforms kidnapped her 82-year-old mother in an effort to force her to resign. Um, Fortunately, Okonjo Uweila did not resign, uh, and her mother was shortly returned safely. Um, She continues to fight for transparency and economic development in Nigeria and throughout the world, most recently spending time in New York this past week at the UN General Assembly, uh, participating in the dialogue that successfully Uh, resulted in the sustainable development goals that emerged from from those deliberations. Um, And she's recently been recognized and and broadened her expertise and influence into the global health sphere, uh, being appointed the new chair of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, which which serves a crucial role in developing countries around the world in in lifting up the basic health status of of populations. we are truly honored by your accomplishments and your expertise, and truly honored to have you here today. Um, you are the ideal person to continue the tradition of, of Lee Holt's inquiry, inquiry into international topics and the way in which um, our international economic and social and health realms are intimately connected with each other. So it is our great privilege to have you here today. As I invite you up, I would um, make two kind of logistical announcement, announcements to the, to the audience. By the way. Both our speaker and I share, um, uh, we were thrilled to see such a large audience. I know from seeing uh, w- from where you registered that I think virtually every school at Penn is represented in the audience law students, but students and faculty from almost every other school, as well as alums and, and distinguished visitors from, from elsewhere. Um, so we welcome you today. Um, one word on format and then a, a kind of logistical announcement. Um, we will you will have an opportunity to ask uh, questions and and engage in a participatory dialogue. And there are colleagues with microphones around who we will try to identify and get to you toward the end of the talk. Um, And and as always, I would ask you to silence your cell phones uh, before our speaker begins. So with no further ado, uh, welcome again. It's our pleasure to have you here.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dean. Um, I hope you can see me. I'm a little height challenged <laughs> so, um, I'm really pleased to be there. And sometimes one of the things that is most difficult to listen to is a description of you and what you've done uh, or achieved, because you keep asking, did I really do that? <laughs> and of course, I just want to give credit to a lot of people, teams, and people who worked with me. You never achieve alone. Uh, but you owe gratitude uh, to a lot of people, and I uh, have my special assistant here, Chisom Okechuku, who is a graduate of University of Pennsylvania, and her professor, who said she's his favorite favorite student. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are ha- both happy to be here today. I'm also happy to be here because uh, at the law school, I've never spoken at a law school. And uh, it's with great trepidation. I'm totally in awe of lawyers. (laughs) So uh, it's a good thing. But I thought I'd do it because also uh, um, I have an honorary doctorate from UPenn. Um, So there are a lot of links and attachments. (laughs) So um, well, I'm indebted to Leon and June Holt for their vision, which was just described and for the lecture series here, which has hosted very great minds like Larry Sonners, Jane Harmon, and others who have spoken uh, and left a legacy here with their words, I I would hope. I want to extend a deep gratitude to the Dean, Professor Theodore Ruger. Thank you very much for your introduction. You and your wife, who is also from the World Bank (laughs) in her earlier life. Uh, for extending an invitation to me, to my friend and sister, Rangita, I owe a special debt of gratitude. She worked so hard uh, to persuade me to overcome what my awe of lawyers and to come. (laughs) Thank you for the warm reception that I've received since I came. Um, I love it. I love actually speaking before young people, because uh, they are the ones who can challenge you to think again and re-examine the premise of whatever it is you're saying. My talk today is titled, Licit and Illicit Financial Flows from Developing Countries. Are lawyers heroes or villains? And I want to engage in a conversation with you all. Of course, someone will say that's a rhetorical question. You're probably both. But let's go into it just like every other profession in the world. But let me begin by setting a context here. Many of you may be aware of the Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs, or you may not. For the benefit of those who are not familiar with with these goals, they were set, the MDGs were set as a set of eight transformational goals identified as far back as year 2000 by the International Development Community, governments of countries, the UN, the business community, civil society, as the key areas of focus for improving the lives of millions of poor people all over the world, particularly in developing countries like my home country, Nigeria. And I I say thank you for having the flag. I love Nigeria in spite of all its difficulties. It's a privilege. So the MDGs were set, and they were focused on reducing poverty, maternal and child mortality, improving education, sanitation, access to water, environment, and all the things especially including global public goods that make our lives tick. The MDGs had a 15-year mandate, which expired this year, 2015. And while significant progress has been made towards the target set in 2000, so much still needs to be done. Hundreds of millions of people still live in extreme poverty and hunger. Maternal mortality is still high. Sixty million children are out of school globally, of which about 10 million in my own country. Global CO2 emissions have increased, and so on and so forth. Gender parity or equality is still a goal that we all aspire to. So to this end, a new set of goals, to be known as the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, have just been adopted by the United Nations and have become applicable and will become applicable in January 2016. With 17 proposed goals and 169 targets, the Sustainable Development Goals this time are universal. I was on the panel of the Secretary General, the the high-level panel set up by Ban Ki-moon to try and help work on and come up with these goals. And our panel came up with 10 goals. But then there were several other panels. And by the time we finished, we had 17. But there's one thing that is different about the goals this time. That is the fact that they are universal. Previously with the MDGs, it was for developing countries and developed countries were trying to work to help developing countries. And um, developing countries decided that maybe this time around, we all have problems. And so when we look at the next set of goals, they should be goals that apply to everybody. There is no country today that can say that they don't have a problem with gender parity. There is no country today that can say that they have no poor people living there. So poverty is for all of us. And most countries have one problem or or the other with access to their health systems. And I could go on and on. So the goals are universal and it's good. Most of all, no country can say that the issue of climate change is one that they're not concerned with or involved with. Even though we may still have climate change deniers, but we know that this is real. So the goals are universal, and the excitement with which they were adopted in New York this week was really stunning to me, the highest turnout of heads of state ever, and this was because these goals were done in a better way this time, from a bottom-up approach. Previously, it was more top-down, but this time there was extensive outreach to involve youth, involve women, involve different constituencies, and everyone had a stake in it. And of course, there are people who will say these are wishy-washy goals and they're so broad, they're like motherhood and apple pie. And maybe they are right. But it's also right that the world should have a set of of actionable goals that guide our living and our lives and make us think of generations to come and generations past and how we should rule, how we should work and live on this earth in the years to come. So I'm quite excited about the goals. And I would urge everybody, even if you don't believe in them, you know, since you're all lawyers, you might be called upon in one way or the other uh, to do something related. You should get a copy of the Sustainable Development Goals and take a look at the goals and targets. Now, the key question really is, and I would come to this, wouldn't I, as a former finance minister, how will countries finance these goals? How will the SDGs be financed? So unlike the MDGs which were largely funded through official development assistance and added to the resources of the countries, most of the developing countries who were trying to reach these goals. The SDGs, there's not as much clarity, although a lot more work has been done about how they would be financed. ODA was about, is about $135 billion annually, and this was used to leverage domestic resources to finance the MDGs. But the more ambitious SDGs require a lot more resources to achieve the set targets if we are to do that by 2030. According to the report of the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, of which I'm a member, Infrastructure investments, which account for about 80% of the total financing that will be needed for the SDGs globally, will require over $6 trillion per year or $90 trillion over the next 15 years if to, to finance. What this essentially means is that the global economy must spend the equivalent of about five years of the total gross domestic product of the U.S. to meet infrastructure targets of the SDGs. However, current global spending on infrastructure is about 1.7 trillion a year. So we are talking about a huge funding gap that is almost three times the current spend. Much of this funding gap has been estimated will have to be borne by developing countries since they account for about 60% of the global infrastructure needs. And current levels of ODA, as I said, at 135 billion a year too meagre, of course, to bridge this gap. It's expected that between 50 and 80 percent of infrastructure financing under the SDGs will come from developing countries' own resources, according to the World Bank's 2013 report on financing for development post-2015. So this is going to be a monumental financing challenge for developing countries in particular, who must now look inwards to mobilize resources domestically and see how they can use this to leverage external resources. But this is not an impossible task. I know that when we talk about trillions, it's mind-boggling, very difficult to imagine. But in 2012, developing countries mobilized their own resources of about US 7.7 trillion domestically, and their scope to do even more. Studies by multilateral development banks and global firms, consulting firms like McKinsey have shown that significant resources can be mobilized by developing countries through plugging leakages and gaps in tax collection, improving the efficiency of public spending, and curbing all forms of illicit financial flows and corruption. With such resources, they can finance the sustainable development goals by using their own domestic resources to leverage the estimated more than $200 trillion in the hands of private institutional investors. These institutional investors currently hold only four to five trillion dollars in infrastructure assets. So if these domestic resources could be adequately mobilized, they could be used to leverage this vast pool of resources in the hands of institutional investors through public-private partnerships, guarantees and other vehicles. The question then becomes how can developing countries improve their domestic resource mobilization What are the possible pool of resources? And this brings me to the topic that I want to talk about today of the illicit and illicit financial flows. So what are these? What are illicit and illicit financial flows? As the definition suggests, illicit financial flows are monies that are legally earned, transferred, and utilized. Within the context of a global financial system, they could include trade flows, foreign direct investment, and remittances from workers abroad which together are a great thing for the recipient economy and need to be encouraged. Illicit flows, on the other hand, are the exact opposite. They are monies that are illegally or corruptly earned, transferred or utilized. They typically originate from four sources. Let me just elucidate on them. The first is commercial commercial tax evasion, trade, misinvoicing and abusive transfer price, which in this context occurs mainly through the circumvention of capital controls and taxes by global companies. As far as tax evasion is concerned, please note that I'm not talking about legal tax deductions allowed by law in various countries, including here in the United States. We may not like them. As a minister of finance, I may not like them. But several countries' tax systems, including my own, do contain loopholes that allow certain legal deductions, which may also be done and lodged abroad. So, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking of illegal activities by large corporates and high net worth individuals to escape tax liability by concealing revenues from tax authorities. If you recall, such concealment came to light during the recent 2008 2009 financial crisis when developed countries were severely cash strapped and started searching for funds. We had been making uh, a, a great deal of noise if you want to call it or we had been a nuisance on this issue in many fora for many years. But no one really listened until the developed countries felt the pinch. Then they started looking at this issue after the financial crisis and if you recall, both Germany and and the UK were able to get back upwards of about $5 billion from uh, tax evasion from monies lodged in Switzerland and Luxembourg. I don't know if you followed that. We have trade misinvoicing, which is the act of misrepresenting the price or quantity of imports or exports in order to hide or accumulate monies in other jurisdictions. The motive here could be to evade taxes, including customs duties, or even to launder money. A transfer price may be manipulated to shift profits from one jurisdiction to another, usually from a high-tax jurisdiction to a lower one. Several large companies, particularly multinationals, are guilty of these practices. And in fact, they are by far the single biggest form of illicit money flows from developing nations to developed ones. And I must say that large domestic concerns, uh, domestic companies also do the same. This represents between 60 and 65% of total flows, according to the Washington-based think tank global financial integrity. There's also the theft of natural resources, which occurs when a country's mineral and oil wealth is brazenly stolen and illegally sold for gain in international markets. And this has been rampant in Sub-Saharan Africa, including my own country. I'm sure you all know about the blood diamonds. we also from Sierra Leone and others, but we also have blood oil now from Nigeria. We've been experiencing significant revenue shortfalls as a result of oil theft and pipeline vandalism aided and abetted also by uh, nefarious people from our own country. At one point, we were losing about 100,000 barrels of oil per day to theft from onshore and swamp operations alone. When the pipelines are vandalized and the oil stolen, it leads to complete shutdown of entire pipelines carrying up to 400,000 barrels a day. If you do the math, you can come up with the billions we lose. We are losing about a billion dollars a month. We also have bribery and theft, which occurs when public servants demand payment under the table for rendering a service, and when a country or a state's budgetary resources are illegally diverted through inflated contracts that are siphoned off abroad or at home by policymakers, politicians, and civil servants. According to the OECD, more than U.S. dollars, one trillion is paid each year in bribes to public officials in both developing and advanced countries in exchange for advantages in international business. These numbers are really large. And finally, we of course have the proceeds of criminal activities, which you all know, like narcotics counterfeiting and so on. All, all in all, the cross-border flow of the global proceeds from illicit activities, corruption, tax evasion, etc., is estimated at between $1 to $1.6 trillion annually according to Global Financial Integrity, a Washington-based anti-corruption think tank. GFI also conservatively estimates that about $990 billion left developing countries in illicit financial flows in 2012 alone, representing roughly eight times the amount of official development assistance flowing in from advanced countries to support these economies. In Africa, the ministers of finance commissioned a study led by the former president of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, to look at estimates of illicit flows from Africa, and his panel estimated that we could be losing as much as $50 billion per annum, which is nearly twice the amount of overseas development assistance that the continent receives. So distinguished ladies and gentlemen, let me put things again in context. With a population of about a billion people, on the continent. It means that illicit financial flows are costing the African continent roughly $50 per capita per person, or per person per year. This is a continent where about 450 million people or roughly 47% of the population live in extreme poverty, less, of course less than $1.25 per day according to the latest poverty statistics of the World Bank. So imagine, if we develop a social safety net program that targets Africa's poor and invest this $50 billion into it, based on simple calculations, we'll be able to channel an extra $125 to each of these four people yearly, pulling many of them out of poverty. With this, I'm most certain that we would come close to meeting the number one goal of the SDGs, which is ending extreme poverty. I'm also sure we could make similar arguments using data from other parts of the developing world, not just Africa, but from other parts of the globe. So typically, one could argue that illicit flows are curtailing financial resources available for infrastructure investment, are preventing the establishment of schools and hospitals, are causing fewer jobs to be uh, created, and ultimately preventing poverty eradication. Under these circumstances, illicit flows are a great injustice to developing countries, many of which may not even have the sophisticated justice system or the kind of expert lawyers that are needed to deal with this problem. So the question now is, how do we address these illicit financial flows, which are hampering the economic and social progress of our developing countries? And this is where I want to address you on the issue of whether lawyers are heroes or villains. Without a doubt, and looking at it, lawyers, they are not the only ones, by the way, but lawyers do play a key role in the world of illicit financial flows. I do not, now I don't mean to be disrespectful of the legal profession. But several studies, including some recent ones by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which brings together the developed countries, has shown the widespread use of the legal profession to carry out transactions that quite often lead to illicit financial flows. This role is even more prominent in commercial tax evasion and trade mispricing by foreign companies operating within developing countries, and bribery and theft by government officials which accounts for the bulk of the illicit flows I mentioned earlier. Given their expertise, lawyers help their clients to identify tax havens, create an, or exploit illegal loopholes in tax regimes, and hide the identities of beneficial owners of companies. By layering these companies or creating what they call, um, uh, you know, sh- um, uh, shadow companies or enterprises, a rampant practice in money laundering amongst other activities. Shell companies, that's, that's the name. So this is a moral question. As a lawyer, should you be helping your clients find legal ways to do the illegal, especially as these illegal activities are retarding the development of other countries? I know many of you may argue that even the most established criminals need lawyers, of course. We know that uh, whatever the crime may be, the law in most countries allow people to be defended by lawyers in the court of law. Some may also view this as a moral dilemma. But in my own opinion, such instances as the ones of defending cold-blooded murderers or others arise after the fact. That is, the crime is already committed. And the involvement of a defense lawyer becomes merely part of what needs to be done. And as such, one may not necessarily question the lawyer's morality on the issue. They are doing their job. But in the case of illicit financial flows, more often than not, it's the lawyers that provide the framework for their clients to do the illegal, or better put, to serve injustice to many of our developing nations. Yet. A lawyer's dealing should always be just and fair, in the words of English poet William Cowper. Furthermore, according to Martin Luther King, Jr., quote, law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail in this purpose, they become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. This is what we're experiencing now, as far as the illicit flows are concerned. Please keep in mind the amounts I'm talking about, $1 to $1.6 trillion. I can also give you more examples relating to bribery and corruption, some of which you may already know of and which which I've written about in my book, Reforming the Unreformable, Lessons from Nigeria. In my country, we have quite a history of money laundered or corruptly stolen assets stashed abroad which we've struggled for years, 20, 30 years, uh, sorry, 15, 20 years uh, to try and bring back to the country, Uh, sometimes with some success, but most times with a great deal of difficulty. With regards to the exploitation of natural resources, developing countries often find themselves at a disadvantage in crafting agreements that define the way and manner in which these resources are to be exploited and the share of resources going to each side. Multinational companies have the best lawyers in the world to help them craft agreements that are sometimes, not all the time, sometimes exploitative of these developing countries. There's a complete asymmetry of knowledge and capacity on the part of developing countries, locking them into years of lost revenue. So distinguished ladies and gentlemen, for years, as I've looked at these matters, From my financial vantage point, I have often wondered in this business of illicit financial flows what we term the lawyers who craft these agreements. And I'm hoping that we have a robust interchange because I'd like to hear your views on this. Are the lawyers just doing their professional job or has something gone awry? Is there a moral dilemma here or is this just the worries of ignorant economists like myself and financial analysts and civil society placing an undue moral burden on the legal profession? I don't have the answers, but I just could not pass up the opportunity to share with you something that has really been worrying me throughout the years. I've observed this phenomenon, both from my vantage point in the World Bank, as well as particularly from my vantage point as a finance minister. And I hope that these questions and this dilemma will help stimulate the thinking of the younger people in the audience, you know, and help them determine on which side of this debate they will stand. First, can lawyers stand for agreements equitable and fair to both sides in these natural resource exploitation contracts? Can lawyers refuse to draw contracts that underpin or support trade mispricing under or over invoicing? Can lawyers refuse to file cases that assist those clearly known to have stolen government money? Let me make haste here to say that those falsely accused of doing these things should, of course, be differentiated. And I would say that because if you follow the press, when I was in government in Nigeria, I spent my time trying to tackle this issue of blocking people Uh, from taking stealing assets, trying to enhance transparency in the way the government did business by publishing as much as one I could of the revenues and transactions of government, trying to stop those who would divert government money into their own pockets. And right now, as I share very often with audiences, when you fight these people who are corrupt, the first thing they do is try to paint you like themselves. So now, having left government, I've been under attack with people saying, she's done this or that, trying to join you in the group of the corrupt. So of course, I would not want those who are falsely accused not to be represented. But for those who, for whom there is enough evidence, or seemingly evidence, I'm not a lawyer, that they've done something wrong, What is the way in which these people should be handled? Should lawyers support them to be able to escape justice? Or what should be done? My thinking is that instead of supporting what would be the leakages of these funds, we should actually find ways to help the developing countries stem the flow and bring the monies Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot at stake, so bear with me, because we are talking about monies that can finance education, health for the vulnerable, and render services to eradicate poverty. What I'm trying to say here in conclusion is that the legal profession has an interesting legal, economic, and financial role to play in helping the whole world achieve the sustainable development goals. But in particular, developing countries to do that. And the role they have to play is here and now and imminent, lawyers can actually help us stem the flow of this large pool of resources which are needed to change society, to make lives better for the underprivileged, to make lives better for those poorer than us in society. So let me conclude with these thoughts from Abraham Lincoln. Let no young man or woman have added the woman. Choosing the law for a calling, for a moment, yield to popular belief. Resolve to be honest at all events. And if in your own judgment you cannot be an honest lawyer, resolve to be honest without being a lawyer. Thank you for listening.
0: 200 years ago here in Philadelphia, um, he said, what is law but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Um, and so to, as you explore this and challenge us to think about our lawyers, heroes, and villains, I think we see that uh, in, the, in that the law embodies human nature, we see elements of, of heroism and villainy. And uh, you've inspired us, uh, both students and faculty, like to think about um, being on the on the, the right side of those legal questions, and uh, and, uh, and shown us how important the legal choices we make, and the legal structures, and the legal and the behavior that lawyers do have real impact in the world for people's health, for economic development. So um, it's a tremendous talk, and it has given us a lot to think about. I know. I also thank you for being willing to engage with the audience, and I know that you've um, generated a lot of. Uh, um, your questions and comments among this group of lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So, we do have um, a few colleagues with microphones, and if uh, please raise your hand if you'd like to, to ask a question. And we'll, so, I see I see somebody uh, right up here. Oh, greetings, Minister. My name is Jasper Jones, and I actually have a partner in Balacia State who set up the first energy cooperative in that state with a community called the Balari Community. And after we got it set up, we went to the Bank of Agriculture for a cooperative grant, which is required by law. And the fellow said, That's me now, boy. I want to know what kind of actions are being taken to stem that type of corruption in the Bank of Agriculture in Nigeria.
1: Okay. Let me, should I take a. Maybe it's better to take them in batches, maybe two or three, and then. Let's
0: take take two or three. Take another one. Uh, Here's.
2: Would you like to comment on the parliamentarians who are passing the laws that the lawyers are operating under?
0: Yeah,
1: let me take those. OK, on the issue of stemming code, this kind of uh, bribe-taking under the table is what I refer to, which is uh, completely deplorable. Um, petty corruption. But this is the kind of cancer that eats away at the ability to attract you know, business or attract um, activities that can help Spur development. And um, I think one of the biggest cancers that destroys development is actually uh, corruption. So, this is something that Nigerians, particularly young Nigerians, are really seized of in the country and all over the continent, and in fact, all over the world, but particularly in my country, people are fed up. That was one of the reasons that I left the World Bank for the second time as managing director because. It's fine for me to go out talking and preaching against it, but who is going to fight it? That's what I asked myself one day. It was actually when I was talking to the Prime Minister of Bangladesh. As managing director, I went out there to talk to her about a project and that involved building a, a very important bridge in her country and was giving all this advice. And she turned to me and said, but why aren't you giving your country this advice? <laughs> it was a profound statement. And those were one things that people don't know about me. And I thought about it, and I said, I'm here pontificating. But there's a lot going wrong. So when the chance or the opportunity came to go for a second time, I went, perhaps unwisely, but I went. Because we need, no one is going to fight that corruption for us. We have to do it ourselves. And the new um, president of Nigeria, who's just taken office, President Buhari has made this the central plank of his administration to fight corruption, to root it out, and he set about restructuring some of the key agencies where these things are happening and setting an example. And I think with that, when you see examples being set in one place, it sends the message about what should happen in the other place. So I think this is being confronted head on, and uh, I hope that with what is going on and what we try to do, in in the previous administration, bringing more transparency to the way of doing business. Um, And hopefully, if we have people who are more courageous enough also to blow the whistle. One of the frustrations that I had when I was finance minister with people, business people come to me and say, oh, you know, somebody has, has just asked me for a bribe somewhere, and you know, this is terrible, and I say, yes, could I have the name? of that person, because if I have the name, if they are in my ministry, they are leaving. Even though we are not supposed to be able, we can't fire civil servants, but there would be a way at least they cannot stay in that ministry. And only once, when I I was finance minister the first time, from 2003 till 2006, did an Italian businessman volunteer the name of the person in my, that was in my ministry then, who had done this. And it was midnight, I was still in the office, I phoned this person personally and I told them not to come to work the next day and took steps. When I had the incontrovertible evidence that the person presented, you know, and then we went around and took steps to verify it well and and make sure that this person really, um, you know, had done the deed and then took the necessary steps. So it's that kind of a thing. So I'm hoping that with the example set by, being set by the president that we'll get rid of this kind of thing in the Bank of Agriculture. On the issue of parliamentarians passing laws under which lawyers operate, um, yes. When the parliamentarians pass the laws, they are subjected to a lot of lobbying. Uh, well, in, in the US, you know, lobbying is a profession with rules and everything. So we don't have that word. It's in, in Nigeria, it's not a profession, and it's regarded as corruption. <laughs> you know, it's not legal. You know, when people take senators and congresspeople out to lunch, you know, give them gifts and all that, they are lobbying them to make sure that these laws are not done right. One very good example, a, a, a bit of a big problem in my country, was the petroleum Industries bill. You're asking if this bill had the power to transform the entire industry, where there's a, a lot of corruption in the oil sector. And with that, it would have commercialized the oil company, made it open up its books. But the heavy lobbying by both domestic vested interests as well as international vested interests blocked this. And in the end, you have a situation in which many of the laws are passed in, in an imperfect form, even the tax laws, because they are not allowed to go in the form in which they were set because of this issue. So we do have a serious problem, you're absolutely right. And of course, once they are passed, then of course, the lawyers, you know? I mean, you know, you can't blame them. So those ones are there, and you know, they're licit. But if we could even do something about the licit ones, that would also be helpful. So you have a point. I don't know whether we should create a lobbying profession in Nigeria. <laughs> we'll need help to do that, so it's not described as corruption. <laughs> For reconsidering their choice to go over <laughs> While they're doing that, we do have time for maybe one more cluster of questions. I see one over there and two up
0: in the back section. Actually, I see three. We'll do three quick ones in the back section. Let's take four quick questions.
3: Hi, uh, sorry, Uh, welcome to Philadelphia. I was actually at the World Bank uh, over the summer for a conference and some of my closest colleagues uh, were from Nigeria, so I just wanna uh, welcome you and uh, say, well, nothing in particular, just wanted to say that. Uh, So, um, from that though, uh, I I began working with uh, USAID and uh, the U.S. Global Development Lab on something called the Global Innovation Exchange. What they're trying to do is sort of bring together all of the resources available for entrepreneurs and humanitarians, whether it be funding programs uh, or organizations that are actually working onto one platform so that they could interact, find funding sources, and uh, sort of execute in their home countries. Um, I know you work on uh, one of the, uh, or excuse me, you're on like uh, one of the boards for um, how to uh, bring cooperation for sustainable development. Uh, so I was just wondering if uh, you could speak a little more to that and how you see in the next decade uh, the best way we could cooperate across borders um, when it comes to sustainable development, humanitarian work, and uh, entrepreneurship and just executing and getting things done.
0: Okay, I, saw, I see three hands up there. I'm going to ask you to, to do something that I never succeed in persuading my faculty colleagues to do, which is to ask succinct sentences, a couple sentence questions,
2: and if so, we'll have time for all three of you before we go. Thank you for for your words, they were very inspiring. Um, A question that I have is, um, when I think about illicit financing, I also think about transparency and accountability, which sometimes leads to initiatives towards formalization, and um, I think sometimes formalization creates legal frameworks that then create new impediments for local economies that are essential for development in developing countries. And so I'm wondering, how do you sort of parse out this legal definition of illicit? And um, how do we create legal frameworks that weed out corruption and illicit financing um, among multinational corporations, but that don't um, hinder the ability for smaller businesses to grow?
1: Hello again, thank you um, and welcome. Uh, my question just has to deal with. I'm sorry, I'm right here. <laughs> um, my question just has to deal with President Buhari, and um, I recognize that. Still looking g- for you. Where are you? I'm here. <laughs> okay, there you sorry. are. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the president, and that today he just sent his list of ministers to the Senate, and I wanted, to, and he named himself petroleum minister um, with. Speaking with regard to corruption, he did that in response to corruption. I want to know what your how your feelings, whether or not that was an appropriate response. We could the one last question, way
0: in
2: the back. Thank you for joining us. Um, my name is actually Ngozi as well. So, uh, as your name said, oh, it's, really? a, <laughs> it's a particular uh, pleasure um, hearing you speak today. Um, so you, you speak about illicit um, flows, financial flows, and um, properly stemming them can help um, uh, secure about fifty billion a year, um, fifty billion dollars a year, and towards financing the SGDs. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about illicit cash flows and particularly um, FDIs and um, private sector financing of Africa's development over the next two to three decades. Um, as as a second year MBA student at Wharton, um, looking to um, kind of go down go go down that path. Um, From your perspective, what do you think um, are two to three things that can really help expand FDI um, and, and private sector financing of SDGs over the next two to three decades?
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much Um, for questions. The Global uh, Innovation Exchange uh, and and the lab, you know, these are really good ideas. I think one of the things that has become clear is that to achieve the SDGs, it cannot be business as usual. We cannot do it without innovation. We need innovation in the way business is done. We even need innovation in what we do And we also need innovation in the way we partner and cooperate, and innovation in the way we finance development. So uh, I think this is what people are seeing. uh, and, And that without a strong partnership, it's so important that partnership, more effective partnerships, is one of the SDGs. So it's actually one of the goals, because it's become very clear that no country can achieve alone, there's no government that can achieve it without the help of the private sector, civil society, and external help. So what does this mean? You need public-private partnerships, you need partnerships across civil society, you need a way to bring people together. So this is why people are exploring what these partnerships could be, within countries, across borders, and international, and nobody, we don't have the perfect answer. I don't think there's a right answer. That's why you have these labs and different ways of thinking about it. But I think that one thing that is clear in cooperation and partnerships is that you've got to think of incentives. Think incentives, of course, as an economist, I would say that. But you need to think of what, what brings people, what motivates people to cooperate and collaborate. What's in it for them? Because at the end of the day, we are human beings. And I think it's the search of those incentives. If we are all joined together to say that it is bad that a billion people live in extreme poverty in the world, if we are joined together to say that inequality is not right that some people have so much and others don't have enough to live on. We are joined together to say that 60 million children should not be out of school. And if we know that you can no longer be safe in your little world, I'm sorry to say that and make people uncomfortable, but the notion that you can be in your own cocoon while things are happening miles away, thousands, is gone. That's look at what we are seeing with Syria and the flow of migrants to Europe. I don't think the Europeans ever dreamt it it could happen that way. But it means that if we don't all come together to cooperate, and we don't all see an incentive to come together, we will not be able to deliver on the SDGs. There's no magic answer that I have, but I think that cooperation requires work. It requires the governments to acknowledge that they need the help of all the other partners. And then it requires a format to help bring them together. And I actually think that in terms of, the, of these, uh, that multilateral institutions, civil society, should take the lead in trying to come together and bring these partnerships. The UN is there for that at a higher level. Some of the other big organizations, but at a lower levels, we should also think of who are those who are best fit to bring actors, including individuals, together to deliver on the goals? Thank you so much. Sorry, I don't have an answer, but no, I it's pose not. the problem. <clears throat> uh, on the issue of formalization that can create impediments, you're absolutely right, and this is always a challenge uh, that one thinks about. If you bring informal activities in, what does it do? But we should distinguish between informal activities and illicit activities. Um, informal activities, sometimes government interference can really get in the way and make things worse. And this is one of the things I always feared as a policymaker. You know, we have in Nigeria, for instance, what we call Nollywood. You know, this is the third largest film industry in the world. People don't know about it, maybe. <laughs> But it's there. And it's created 200,000 direct jobs, a million indirect jobs, and $250,000 in value. It did not happen with government help or regulation. It happened by itself. And we were almost afraid as a government to go in and interfere because we might end up doing more harm than good. But I think at the end of the day, we have to think of helping some of these informal activities to become more formal for one reason, that they cannot access some of the capacity enhancement and finance they need, unless you can find a way to help them to formalize. They're outside the economy. And of course, as a a former finance minister, I would want more formality because I want to tax also. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's always a a challenge and a balance, and I'm I'm looking for uh, young lawyers to help us think through what kinds of frameworks, so I don't have the answer. But I do think that for illicit flows, we really need to go into that. I have no trepidation there on trying to look for frameworks that can curb and stop this. And the first begins at home. So we provide the, the opportunity for some of these flows to go out. So we have to start looking at ourselves in our countries and saying what are we doing with the loopholes we have, with the lack of capacity we have to craft some of these laws and so on and so forth. But then we also need to look outside and we need to look at those companies. And I really think there uh, we need to build, bring the full force of expertise, knowledge and legal framework to bear. So I hope you can help solve this problem. Um, Oh, the third question was the President as Petroleum Minister. Um, I I think presidents have the prerogative to do a lot of things. And this is not the first time in our country that a President has been uh, a minister, neither in Nigeria nor elsewhere. So it's President Obasanjo was also the Minister of Petroleum Resources in his time. And um, so it's not, I'm not saying this may be the best practice or the best way, I'm just saying for our own circumstances, it's not the first time. Um, If that will bring more clarity, more openness, more transparency to the way that the oil sector is done, why not? But if it will not, then we have to ask questions. But that is what we are asking for, openness, transparency and clarity. And throughout the time I was in government, that was the one thing. When I found out that the Ministry of Finance really didn't have much to do in terms of linkage with petroleum, we are the receiving end of the resources they would give us. And there was not even an oil and gas unit in the ministry. The first time I was there as finance minister, I found this very anomalous, and I created such a unit. And in doing our homework, we were able to find about a billion dollars after about two or three months of this unit in existence. The oil companies owed us that they had not paid. I remember the then-president Obasanjo's excitement when we brought this work to him, and we promptly uh, took it to him, and the oil companies admitted they owed this money, and they paid. When I left, the unit was disbanded. When I came back the second time, I had to recreate it, and I didn't make the mistakes the first time. It was sitting in my office and was not institutionalized. So this time, we've tried to leave something that is part and parcel of, of the ministry structure. So anything that will bring more transparency, linkages, oversight and accountability. And if it takes the president feeling that it will be, he will, can deal better with corruption in running this, uh, then it's okay. The last question was two or three things that can expand FDI and other flows like remittances over the next decade. Well, let me just say something. We really need to, um, FDI is great, and um, I I'll I will come to things we can do to expand it. But one of the most interesting things that we're finding in terms of uh, capital flows uh, into our countries on the African continent is the largest flows are from emerging market countries. That. Investment in our countries are coming in from other emerging markets, not really from the developed countries anymore in the way we think about it. So we really also need to shift our mindset to address these other countries. And one interesting phenomenon is that Africa to Africa investment is increasing dramatically. So when we think of flows, one of the things that we need to think about on our continent is also the pools of resources that are on that continent that we need to attract. South Africa has pension funds of in excess of $160 billion that could flow into, and they've started, you know, that could be mobilized into various types of investment. Nigeria has now up to $27 billion. Kenya has more than $10 billion. So within the, and we invest some of this outside because uh, we've made pension laws and rules, you know, very conservative in what can or cannot be done with the money and where to invest. So we also need to look at these resources and see if we can stimulate more flows within our continent, within our countries. I have what I call DDI, domestic direct investment. You know, Dangote has put in uh, for a petrochemical plant about $9 billion you know, which is more than many other investors have brought in. So to answer your question, the one or two things we can do immediately is look at out-of-the-box investors, you know, to also try and attract them. You know, let's not just think of developed countries bringing FDI, but also of emerging markets and our own ourselves. But one of the biggest things that attracts foreign direct investment or domestic direct investment or African direct investment is good policies. Good policies and good governance. If people believe that the rule of law will obtain in your country, if they believe that if a transaction goes wrong that they'll be treated fairly, then they will bring their resources. If they don't have that confidence and that belief, they will not do it. So we need to look at governance. We need to look at good policies and framework. And we need to look at the bureaucratic impediments that we may or may not put in the ways of the resource flows. Not only for those investing from without, but also those within. I think those are generally the areas. I tell you, you know, some of the countries that receive investment from others, it's based on good institutions. At the end of the day, what distinguishes developing countries from developed is solid, sound institutions. We have weak institutions to non existent institutions. That's another talk that I could give you. <laughs> but I can't resist doing my Switzerland test on you. How many of you know who the president of Switzerland is? Okay, (laughs) You know, quickly, uh, Siri. You're not allowed to look it up. (laughs) It's a woman. Her name is, do you remember? Simonetta. Simonetta. You know, you have to think about it. But people take their money to Switzerland. It's a haven for both licit and illicit flows. People even, even. Dishonest people think their money is safest in Switzerland. (laughs) And that is because Switzerland has good institutions, isn't it? The rule of law. People believe they'll get justice. They don't care who the president is. In my continent, we are very fixated on personalities and presidents and, you know, even here in the U.S., the way we carry on. If you get to a point where your country, people will come there without even knowing who is running the country. And I think you've arrived. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Thank you so much. I know I speak for everyone in the room just to say in in words of gratitude, you've you've enriched us with your words and your presence today. You've given us a lot to think about, um, and we're tremendously grateful for you being with us. Thank you. Um, It's my pleasure now to invite all of of you up to, to the first floor of the law school to continue this conversation with some food and drink in a reception.